0: Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical
1: practice, academics,
0: research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu.
1: Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. On this episode, we have... uh, Attorney at law Mark Silberman from Benish a Law Firm in Chicago, Illinois, and he is here to talk a little bit about a bunch of different topics related to do anesthesia, CRNAs, and in general. So, welcome, Mark. Really glad to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Mike,
0: happy to be happy to be here. Sorry it took so long to organize.
2: <laughs> no worries. So, listen, Mark. Let's get right into it. Tell me a little bit about your career and time in healthcare. And I know, of course, you worked for the ANA. Sure.
0: So, look, my, my background is the standard path to healthcare that everyone takes. Uh, I was a state and federal prosecutor. I had a fine gentleman who I sent to prison for manufacturing methamphetamines. He got out of prison, moved in upstairs with me in the house I was renting. I started getting death threats. And I suddenly realized, you know, healthcare always interested me. It's a story you've heard a thousand times. <laughs> Nothing. Look, it's the absolute truth. I was was a state and federal prosecutor. I was doing uh, all sorts of work. I had been the head of the domestic violence unit. I had been the head of the narcotics unit doing gang shootings, murder trials. Um, But it was time for me to move on. And so I went to the Illinois Department of Public Health, uh, took over their enforcement and advocacy work, uh, did a little more in government healthcare, and then moved to private practice. And God, this one I have to... And now it's been about... 16, 17 years that I've been in private practice, uh, just helping healthcare professionals, healthcare uh, entities, uh, systems, uh, basically navigating uh, the wonderful world of healthcare, healthcare regulations. And the role that I have at Vanish is twofold. I'm vice chair of our firm's national healthcare practice. We're about uh, 30 lawyers uh, nationally. We do everything. uh, We actually cover the full spectrum of healthcare in the sense of everything from the business side, uh, ranging from the establishment of businesses, but also the buying, selling, you know, uh, mergers, acquisitions, I mean, all of that in healthcare, all the way through the regulatory guidance, all the way through the advocacy litigation, and the only parts of healthcare we don't do, we don't do personal injury, we don't do uh, medical malpractice. Uh, our opinion is it's kind of hard to maintain a meaningful relationship with healthcare professionals if you're also suing them.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure uh,
0: that's true. <laughs> And then as you as you uh, look, but the other hat that I wear uh, is I'm also chairman of our firm's uh, white collar uh, government investigations and regulatory compliance group, where, um, as you know, there's a lot of uh, enforcement and regulatory and oversight in healthcare, And it's getting more and more aggressive. I think we're going to see that as we continue to come out of COVID. Uh, a lot of money went out. The government's going to want to see if it was spent right and try to get it back. So. I do audits, investigations, all of that work, a lot of False Claims Act work, and uh, then the AA&A component, uh, I had the honor for about 10 and a half years of serving as the general counsel uh, for the AA&A, and I still continue to help out with a variety of advocacy issues, and I'm always available uh, to help out and to support the CRNA community. We actually have a team. We were uh, I got to be an exhibitor for the first time at the AANA annual convention. And uh, we have a team of, you know, what, eight lawyers who were there uh, helping out and presenting at our exhibit. We have, you know, two uh, JDs who are also RNs. One who's a former Medicare surveyor, uh, state, you know, red, you know, legislator, regulators. I mean, we have a we just have a great team.
2: Excellent. So there's a, a depth and breadth of understanding of healthcare in that team.
0: Sure, it's not. It's not like three people who said I, I watched Doogie Howser. I think I
2: can do healthcare. <laughs> all right, and and from what I saw, reading a little bit about Banish is that it that law firm is huge. Does all kinds of different law, every kind, full spectrum, and is it and across the yeah. country, correct?
0: It is. It's funny though. Like you, you say that we're huge. So the law firm that I was at before when I started as the AADA's general counsel uh, was about a seven hundred person firm. Ah, uh, Benish is half the size of that, but we have grown immensely. We're actually the the, the fastest growing law firm in Chicago. When I joined January one of twenty seventeen, we were I was the twelfth lawyer in the Chicago office. Uh, we are over a hundred lawyers in Chicago now. Wow. Um, and what's funny, and the only reason I say it's funny when you talk about it being a big law firm is everyone who has come to Benish uh, is certainly in the Chicago market. We all left the big firms. We left the 700, 900, seven hundred, nine hundred, thousand, twelve hundred. person firms to come to Benish because it was smaller because it actually allowed a little more control of rates a little more building of relationships uh so you're right we're no we're not a small firm by any means but we're also we always describe we're very nicely set in that middle market niche where we can practice and help national clients uh but we don't have to have the price structure that makes it impossible for individuals uh, or smaller
2: businesses to use us so when you look back at your career uh, besides the particular case that you mentioned at the beginning, is there one case or event that sticks out um, to you related to CRNAs in your career?
0: You know, I guess the one thing I would say is this I have what drew me into government healthcare, uh, you know, besides the, the sort of pivot in my career, I, I was the general counsel for the Illinois Certificate of Board. Uh, and the principle of the CON, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, real quick, it's just it's a Used to be a national program, but now some states have it, some states don't. Where you need regulatory authority if you're going to establish a healthcare facility um, or sell or buy or discontinue. And um, the core principles are you are that healthcare is too important for us not to allow it to just to the free market. That the importance of having access to care, the importance of having access to care without increasing costs, without sacrificing quality, especially for indigent and underserved communities. These things are so fundamentally important that um, mm-hmm. that we're actually going to sort of suspend the free market concept and let the government have a degree of oversight into it. And as the son of an antitrust lawyer, this seemed to be the most anti-competitive, monopoly-granting thing I'd ever heard. But the principles are right. And I'm not going to say the government always gets it right in how they do it, but, but, but the principles are worth fighting for. And then when I got introduced to the AANA those same principles could not be more true of any aspect of healthcare delivery than CRNAs, right? It is CRNAs that are making sure people have access to healthcare, that have access to quality care, that in you know, rural and indigent and underserved communities, absent CRNAs, they would not have access to care that they need, and, and not mm-hmm. just what the CRNAs themselves are doing, but all of the care that is allowed to be provided through the administration of anesthesia. And so when I had the opportunity to sort of argue some of those issues and some of the uh, amicus briefs that we've done, or uh, there was a circumstance, I know this is going to sound weird, but uh, we filed a case uh, in federal court in Chicago where we were trying to challenge uh, some of the things that the government was doing. And it was a circumstance where uh, the case had been tried before. It had been unsuccessful. Uh, we felt like we took a uh, creative approach in how to do it. But the purpose in doing this, while look, I feel still strong that it was a legally sound argument, it was enough that it got the court, you know, where the courts had dismissed these cases before the courts like, all right, I need some time to think about it. And in doing that, it allowed for the ANA advocacy team, right? And the individuals, uh, you know, Uh, you know, you have, you know, Anna Poliak who was in charge of the state, Ralph Cole, uh, Romy, uh, you know, all of these folks to sort of jump in, do their thing, push the issues, coordinate with the government and facilitate the types of dialogue and change that we needed. Because I will tell you, I know it's weird for a lawyer to say in an ideal world, lawyers aren't the answer, but in an ideal world, lawyers aren't the answer, right? Because from my perspective, if I can reduce cost, reduce risk and create certainty for my clients, even though it may yield less legal fees, it's better for everyone, and long term, it works out better.
2: Right, right. Overall, and it goes easier, takes less time, and you you meet in the middle.
0: Yeah, I mean, look if you if you really stop and think about it, overwhelmingly, the mass majority of cases get resolved by something other than a trial. Yeah, and that is, that is true in criminal, that is true in civil, that is true in business, that is true in administrative. Right. I mean, if everybody one day said we want to go to trial, the system would collapse. (laughs) Um, So what you have. So what you have to do is figure out how to make sure you're set up. I mean, you've probably heard me say this before, but I tell my clients, anyone can sue anyone else for anything at any given time. Right. Right. So don't spend your life worrying about getting sued. Do what you can to avoid being sued successfully. Right. Do the right thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I will tell you. I mean and this was guidance that I gave throughout COVID one of the most uh, commonly you know cited comments that I made during COVID you know when being interviewed and things like that was let's be honest that we were all kind of making this up as we went along right right this was unprecedented we were taking principles that didn't necessarily apply to the circumstances of a global pandemic trying to figure out how to you know cram a square peg into a round hole but what I told my clients is if you are doing the right thing, if when someone says to you, why did you do what you did? Because it was the right thing. It was the right thing for the patient in front of me. It was the right thing for the community I'm serving. It was the right thing to protect lives. Whatever it was, if you actually have a reason that makes sense, that you can explain based on the information available, even if someone gets grumpy about it later, you will be in a position to defend yourself, to address any allegations or concerns. And at the end of the day, I'd much rather have a client who is facing the circumstance where when they're asked, why did you do this? <laughs> Their answer is something other than, well, I was going to make a lot of money if I did that. Right.
2: <laughs> right. So, you know, I know you've written a lot of legal briefs for the ANA and of course outside of the ANA. And one of the particular legal briefs that um, I reference a lot is the False Claims Act liability for CRNAs related to medical direction. One of the things that consistently and constantly comes up is the perception that, well, in order to be safe, CRNA must have a physician anesthesiologist involved. And so if you're not working with a physician anesthesiologist and you're working independently like I am in rural Arizona, uh, that the surgeon is somehow liable for the actions of a CRNA. couple questions. First question is, is there a liability from your perspective for a surgeon for the actions of an anesthesia care team CRNA working with a physician anesthesiologist? Can that surgeon be sued for uh, that the actions of uh, an anesthesia care team CRNA and and is a physician anesthesiologist liable? What kind of liability is there from from your perspective?
0: Well, wow. so you see, you know, you can't ask a lawyer a question like that <laughs> where you know. But no, no, Look, I, so I, so for the first, by the way, the first thing that I do have to do because I have to give credit where credit is due. You made reference to the legal briefs article that I did for the ANA, right. but I would not feel comfortable if I didn't acknowledge. What I did was an update of what Gene Blumenreich had done right. general counsel for 29, 29 years before me, right. right? And so you talk about standing on the shoulders of a giant, but he served this profession for an extended period, and uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, so you, I'll answer the two questions. Uh, you asked the question of can, you know, a doctor get sued for that? Sure. I told you, you right. can sue anyone for anything, right. right? But is there liability? The answer, generally, now you're talking about for the medical direction. What I will tell you is generally no. And as long as the doctor stays in their lane. Right. And the reason that I say that is liability turns on control. Mm -hmm. Right. So what degree of control? And we all look in the law. There's all sorts of discussions of control, right? right? You know, there's control. Do you have enough control that you're an employee, not a 1099 contractor, you know, one of the things that when I always talk about that and I say, you know, if they can control the who, what, where, why, when of the procedure, and they're like, so wait a minute, if the doctor says we're scheduling it at two o'clock and, no, you know, we're not talking about that kind of control. We're talking about control over the administration of anesthesia. So if I can assume that you are working with a surgeon and she or he is focused on, you know, the surgical procedure and the crna is focused on the administration of anesthesia right? right you can collaborate you can coordinate you can identify what's the best position in which to have the uh patient with regards to uh you know access for the surgical procedure with regards to you know all of the different things that you need to that's not the kind of control but control should not Ah uh, liability should not go to the doctor in any way, shape or form unless they are controlling the administration of anesthesia. So if they're saying you cannot use this drug, you need to use this other drug, and not a discussion, but like a they're directing your decision, and then that decision yields an adverse, you know outcome, right? Because we talk about medical malpractice. I don't do medical malpractice, but, You know, I I do lecture on it for CRNAs, and the idea is just because something bad happens doesn't mean you have liability, right? right? You have to have the necessary legal relationship. You have to have a breach of the standard of care, and you need to then have an injury, and then there has to be a causation. And then if you have all of that, then you can have liability, right? So if you have a situation where a uh, physician says, you're going to use this drug, and you say, this is not my, professional thing and I would recommend against this. And the answer is well this is my OR, this is what you're going to do and then that decision causes a problem, then in that situation, yeah, in theory a, a physician could create for themselves liability. Right. But if at the end of the day the relationship is set that I trusted the qualified independent practitioner to be the qualified independent practitioner that they are and of course we coordinated for the welfare and the benefit of the patient, but the administration of anesthesia was left to the professional trained in anesthesia, right. there should yield no liability. If assuming of course that liability, they' what happened related to the administration of anesthesia, because I'm sure you've seen and experienced with colleagues, you know, lawyers like to just sue everyone and let God sort it of out, Right. Right. So you can, you know, there could, I mean, there could literally be a situation where say someone amputates the wrong limb, And you sue the anesthesia provider as if, you know, somehow the administration of anesthesia related to that. Right. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I could could probably come up with a good argument. If you hadn't sedated the patient, they would have told you that's the wrong leg. Um, Probably not a good legal argument, but the idea is if everyone stays in their lane, if you trust the anesthesia provider to be, and the other thing that's unquestionable is this, there is certainly no more liability in working with a CRNA than there is with a, uh, you know, MD anesthesiologist. Like, that's just a misnomer.
2: Right. And You know, part of the reason why I'm, I ask you these questions, because it's often said that a physician anesthesiologist is a liability barrier for a surgeon. And so that's why, you know, the surgeon should want to have them there because of the liability barrier. Now, clearly, there's no difference in liability whether you're working with a CRNA or a physician anesthesiologist or both from a surgeon's perspective. But there really isn't a liability barrier because if the people are staying in their lanes and the CRNA does something, let's let's call it the CRNA's fault, does something totally independent that the physician anesthesiologist has nothing to do with, it's the CRNA who's going to be on the hook.
0: Sure. Well, look, and the surgeon's I, not going to be look. I am, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I am in no way, shape, or form uh, anti-physician, anti-anesthesiologist, sure, no. right? I, I, but, 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 so what I will say this: I do think the idea of that is rooted in the idea that uh, well, doctors are better than nurses,
3: right? right? I mean, that,
0: that's sort of the, 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 and, but like, I will also tell you, I had a circumstance with, but so I think as long as you're working with qualified individuals and the sort of best example I can give, right, is I had a circumstance where I won't bore you with all the details, but one of my children, when they were very young, had a healthcare issue. And the circumstances were, uh, she was, uh, dehydrated and they were trying to get in an IV. And the first time the young, physician made an effort and couldn't get the IV in. And the second time couldn't get the IV in. And I finally said, listen, I don't mean to get be rude. And I understand the importance of learning, but if you could get the nurse in here to get the IV in. Right. And the, the physician looked at me um, and I don't know if it was a new doctor or a resident, but it didn't really matter to me. I was looking at my child who was looking at me saying, why are you letting them hurt me, dad? Right. right? right. That was what her eyes said. Yeah. And I said, listen, I don't mean to be rude, but if you can tell me you have any fraction of the experience that the nurse who I was talking to earlier has, and they looked at me, and nurse came in, got it done right away. I didn't care, physician nurse. I, I, I've I've framed, I've coined this phrase long ago. Patients don't care about the degree of the healthcare provider; they care about the degree of healthcare provided.
2: Absolutely, right? Yeah, that's a great phrase. That, I mean,
0: so uh, so so you're right. The idea that you will have less liability if you work with a physician than with a nurse is rooted in the idea that physicians are better than nurses. You ready? I'm sure there are physicians who are better than nurses. Sure. Just as much as I know for a fact, there are nurses who are better than physicians. And as long as you're working with qualified people, you should be in good stead.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think when people talk about, you know, this malpractice and the concern and, you know, CRNA is working independently. Obviously a lot of this is, you know, uh, trade organization banter, right? But the, I think, I think the for me, the proof is in the pudding for the malpractice cost, you know, when I, as an independent CRNA, I don't pay any more than a CRNA who works with a physician anesthesiologist in an anesthesia care team for my medical malpractice. And if there was increased liability, wouldn't they charge more? I mean, actuaries don't care about CRNA. Are you
0: suggesting, <laughs> yeah, are you suggesting that the marketplace works for that? Well, look, that's, if you look at the, uh, You know, if you want to talk about advocacy, if you look at the AANA and the AANA insurance services, right, Right. they created the marketplace when CRNAs weren't able to get insurance. People have come to realize the value and the opportunity other people have entered the marketplace. You know, AANA insurance services allowed it. And one of the biggest, and I put in air quotes, problems is, you know, malpractice insurance for anesthesia providers continues and continues and continues to go down because you were providing great quality care. And I mean, anesthesia providers, right? Right. It's not, you know. MD anesthesiologists haven't been going down where nurse anesthesiologists are going up. The idea is anesthesia is continuously and continuously and continuously getting more and more safe. The result of that is the premiums go down because there's less cost, less claim, less, right? And so, yes, to your point, the driver who has a history of problems is going to pay more than the driver who doesn't. That's sort of the way the system – and so, yes. If you are noticing that there is no difference in the premium for an independent CRNA versus a CRNA and the care team versus an right, uh, that is a, a perfect example where the marketplace would work it out if there were truth to what was being presented.
2: Exactly. Their business. They're business. They're not in the business of paying out lawsuits. They're in the business of of, of maintaining premiums and making money, which is fair. And so that business is going, everything's going to turn upon that principle for the business. So if there was increased cost of liability for CRNAs or physician anesthesiologists, their premiums would increase. And that, and that's, that would be how those actuaries who don't care about CRNAs or MDs or anyone else would determine, you know, how to protect their, their interests as a business. The next question would be, you know, when a CRNA is working in a medically directed practice and it's built that way. So not the perception, because of course, in order for this, the you know, tep- to meet Tefra, uh, the seven Tefra rules, that has to be billing under medical direction with Medicare. Um, Med- medical direction versus QZ, yeah, right? versus QZ, exactly. So not medically directed QZ. So when they thank wor- you, thank you, thank you, Juan Quint- Quintana for teaching me that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when they're working under that medically directed practice, and and if there is medical Medicare fraud being committed, in other words, not meeting. Any one of the seven Tefra rules, you know, all seven of them, pretty clear. Be there for induction, difficult portions of the case, prescribe the anesthetic, be there for emergence, uh, that kind of stuff. What is the risk to that CRNA? So let's say, you know, let's say they're working in a care team and the MD says, uh, "Yeah, I just go ahead and get started, and I'll come in and sign the chart later." What what's the risk to the CRNA? Obvi- that's clearly not the intent of the billing requirements right so what what would be that yeah. risk
0: so if it's okay i'm going to sort of start at this at the back end and come back sure. towards your question because you know look, people forget about this when they know of my role is the you know association general counsel but like i said I, i'm the head of our firm's white collar practice i do fraud and false claims and you know uh all of these government investigations, all these things. This is what I do more day in and day out. Right. Um, uh, it was it was it was actually more my commitment to the profession, you know, that had me continuing with the A Um Like I'm not an association guy day in day out. That's just not what I do. So the False Claims Act is a tool that a lot of people are using. Uh, I mean, candidly hoping for their their payday, their checkout, right? Like. <laughs> I'm going to bring this. I and don't get me wrong. I mean, its design can sort of deputize everybody to reveal to the government fraud the government wouldn't otherwise know about. And if you do, and there's a recovery, you can get a percentage of it, assuming you qualify and meet certain requirements. Right. So, anecdotally, um, I have heard a couple of CRNAs over time, he says sarcastically, <laughs> suggest that um, they're working in practices where the seven requirements of TEFRA are not being met. And so the question becomes twofold, right? People ask me, hey, can I bring massive global uh, false claims that case on this and retire with my own private island, right? And then the <laughs> other question is, what 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 risk do I have? And by the way, the only thing I'll say is, you know, when you have the case that will allow you to retire with your own private island, don't forget a lawyer like me who can have a third of that. Island. That would be nice. <laughs> um, no, but... I, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but more realistically, the question that I'm getting is what risk is there to me as a practitioner or a provider? Right. So the two areas where, let's start with the first thing that the CRNA can control, right? right? Which is, um, creating a false document or a false record for the purposes of obtaining government funds is a violation of the False Claims Act. Okay. Right. So how does that relate to the CRNA? If it is your responsibility to create a document that says, you know, the uh, physician anesthesiologist was present and prescribed the anesthesia plan and personally participated in induction and emergence and all, and, and you go through the lists, right? right? And, and that is just untrue, right? If, if you claim that in a record that is then submitted to the government to yield payment and it is false, then you do have risk, right? So when I, when I teach on this, when I lecture on this, the one thing I say is this, don't ever create a false record, right? right? Because if you do, you are certainly opening yourself up to liability. Now, the other component is sort of the reckless disregard, right? Is if you reckless disregard, um, that usually applies more when it comes to the submission of a bill, and usually it's not the c r n a that is uh submitting their own bills or submitting their own in these circumstances where they are working in an environment where someone is claiming medical direction where it might not have occurred. Does that make sense in the sense of if you're in if you're an, if you're an independent practitioner who's you know ten ninety nine working on your own, you're providing your own services you're also then often either having someone do your billing or billing yourself but you're not often then billing medical direction
2: right right. So now, all so, that reckless disregard, yeah. is that is—is is that the same as claiming ignorance? Like, you know, the person who's always been a W-2RN that comes into this practice, they don't know yeah. anything about TEFRA because it's not like yeah. people know. Like, no one's saying, sure. here's the seven things you got to make sure that dude do, do, does and you're liable for it. Does that fall under reckless disregard, the person who just isn't aware? Well, well,
0: wait a minute. You're saying that people don't go to bed every night reading about the tax equity. I know, for it's Format? it's
2: shocking. So,
0: So the answer is... I mean, and I hate to say it depends, but that's always the lawyer's favorite answer. Right, but um, it, it is not something that is likely uh, to yield reckless disregard. Um, what it, reckless disregard is usually, you know, it's an issue you ignore the information and you submit things anyway, right? But reckless disregard is a. I mean, let's be candid. The government defines these things broadly and wild, widely enough so that they can take a certain fact situation and argue that it does. Doesn't you know, keep- So what I always tell people, yeah, is look, communication is the best with regards to this. Now, so here's the question. If this is an issue, if this really is an issue that's going on all the time, why has nobody you know, done anything? Why hasn't the government jumped in? So when you look at a False Claims Act case, there are a couple of different ways you look at it, right? One is you could make the argument that any claim that is tainted by a false certification or like a kickback or whatever it might be, there there are sometimes the government takes the position that everything is tainted and everything is recoverable.
3: Right.
0: There are other circumstances where they say what's recoverable is the difference in the value. So, like if you had a legitimate basis to perform a procedure coded at such a level that it paid a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. but you up you up coded it to something that paid a hundred and ten dollars, you're not necessarily liable for a hundred dollars of fraud. It's that extra ten that's fraudulent.
3: Right. Okay. Right,
0: and it's not always applied the same. It does depend. It depends on the facts, the circumstances, all of these different issues. But here, it's a question of whether or not 100 percent of the you know bill is attributable to the CRNA versus whether some is attributable to the CRNA, some is attributable to the you know MD anesthesiologist, and it doesn't seem to be a big concern who's getting credit because it's not increasing the government's costs, right? And that tends to be a reason that this doesn't seem to be an area that's of a lot of interest to, uh, what do you call it, to to to, to, to key tam plaintiff's lawyers. It doesn't seem to be something that uh, a lot of people are bringing. I mean, we talked about the fact that there are some cases that have tried to bring this. And look, one of the problems is sort of bad facts make bad law, mm-hmm. right? In the sense of you talk about the idea that you know, what these TEFR requirements mean is pretty easy, pretty clear. But I think you would agree, and, I, you know, you and I have talked about, like, the Donovan case. Right. You can convince a non healthcare provider that it's not really that clear.
2: Right, and, right? and that's the jury. I mean, we, and we, Lawyers we, and judges.
0: Right, well, yeah, I mean, look, we live in a world that it depends on what this is mean, right? Right. Um, and so the... I mean, and, and I don't mean that to be cavalier, but look, there are statutes. We have case law that says that shall doesn't mean must, right. and that must means you might, right? Because you know, you know, we, we, we don't necessarily always give language uh, its exact meaning, and so you know, it's one of the circumstances where, look, if you can show that Doctor X was billing medical direction when Doctor X was in Antigua and the perform the, the procedures being performed weren't in Antigua. But that's a much cleaner case, right. right? Then, you know, I came in at this point, but I was only there for 18 minutes. So it, it's, it's one of those circumstances if I were ever going to bring a case of this nature, I would want to frame the issue as solidly and as concretely as possible. Right. Uh, because bad facts can make bad law. And ultimately, you can get to a point where you get a court that says, you know something, we don't really care about this. And then... That would yield to more of a proliferation of, uh, you know, billing for medical direction, which I don't think is something the CRNA community
2: wants. No. So so looking back on a couple things you said, the first thing is, is ignorance is not a defense in the eyes of the law. (laughs) So even if you don't know about TEFRA, that doesn't mean that you can't get in trouble for not meeting it as a CRNA or a physician, either one, because you've agreed to that when you've become a Medicare biller effectively if you're billing in that way so that's one thing that will take away and then the second thing is that uh you know the the kytam lawsuits for for those listening are lot are whistleblower lawsuits so when someone in this case it might be a physician or a crna who sees that medicare for our being committed for many different ways or in anesthesia it might be under this medical direction stuff we're talking about who chooses to then go get a CITAM law- lawyer and try and basically, you know, can get up to ten percent of what is recovered. Um and and then the government can take that case over if they think it's meritous, meritous enough. So on that on that end, on a, on the whistleblower end, by I think its very nature, the evidentiary requirement, the bar is high, which is probably partially what makes these cases I've read a lot of these cases just because it's so interesting, um to me anyway. And I think the bar is high for evidence. You, you can't just be the, the, you know, a physician or a CRNA who says, hey, so I've seen Medicare fraud happening here for the last three years I've been here. Let's go. That's <laughs> not enough. There has to be hard evidence of that, right? It has to be trackable. It has to be probably in writing. probably has to be documents um, that they're doing those kind of things.
0: Well, no, you're, look, there, you, any, anyone can make the allegation, but if you want to be able, and, and the way that a False Claims Act works case works like the key cam case Mm -hmm. is you have to identify the case you bring the complaint you do it under seal and you give it to the government and give the government the opportunity to take the case case over and then in the event that they don't it goes forward you have the ability to continue to move the case forward effectively standing in the shoes of the government the government still has an interest in the case they can take it over at any time and if you recover the government still gets a significant portion of the money but you get more money if you take the case forward on your own right? The percentage. than if the government took it over. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the the burden of proof, you know, we're talking about a civil case. So you are talking about a preponderance of the evidence. More likely than not, and you have to be able to support it and prove it and convince the judge or a jury of it.
2: Right. So it's not something, you know, I just want to make sure that the people that are listening, CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists that may be thinking about this, is it's not something to enter into lightly. And they take years.
0: No. No. Well, look, it takes a long time. And look, this is one of those things. It comes with it. Whistleblower protection, right? Whistleblower protection in the sense that you are revealing wrongdoing and therefore you're entitled to avoid being retaliated. Right. But why is it we have whistleblower protection laws? (laughs) Because people will retaliate. Yes. Right. And and I don't mean that. And I'm not saying like, so like, I, I wish I could tell you that we've gotten to a point we don't need, you know, we can get rid of our sexual harassment laws and we can get rid of our You know, uh, discrimination laws and we can get rid of our domestic violence laws because people have decided to treat each other well and we no longer need them. But that ain't the case.
3: Right? Right.
0: And so one of the things you need to realize is that once you are in a small community and you choose to go the route of being a whistleblower, and I'm not discouraging anyone from doing that. Right. Right. But do you know what, ironically, do you want to know what the most common thread you have between whistleblowers are? Everyone, you know, people will tell you it's a disgruntled former employee. Um, there are certainly those cases, but there's also a lot of cases where you had an employee who raised an issue, raised a concern, tried to get someone to pay attention and no one would. And as a last resort, they went this route, right? right? Most of the people doing this aren't necessarily trying to make their payday. They're trying to fix something that needs to be fixed. So, um, my advice to employers, listen to your people when they come and they raise a concern. Um, even if they're not right, take the time to explain to them why, why you're not concerned, why it's not an issue. Right. Um, but to your point, this isn't something where hey, throw it out there. What the hell? It can't hurt. Because I don't know if I'm allowed to speak that cavalierly on your podcast. Sure, you can. Me later. Uh, But no, but no. But the idea is, it shouldn't be done cavalierly because it can. It, it takes a long time. It has an emotional toll, um, and uh, you know. That being said, if you are revealing fraud, um, and I mean, there are cases where people have literally received tens and hundreds of millions of dollars for the fraud they revealed Um, so it can be life-changing
2: but then there is also those cases the one that comes to mind is the traverse city one uh where you know people have gone through the process they are they have whistleblower protection they were found to be you know true and accurate and and there were there was money recovered but then they can't work in that area and they got like $50,000 Fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars each. Let's say I don't actually know what they're because it's all sealed. But sure. but let's say that's what they got. Well, if you're a CRNA with an average income of you know anywhere around two hundred thousand dollars a year, well, that's not enough to retire. And in some cases, even though there's whistleblower protection, I think it's important to understand that there's retali- ways to retaliate around that. And so
0: well, and, and whistleblower protection keeps the individual you blew the whistle against from retaliating against you. Right. But depending on what state you're in, if the next person decides they don't want to hire you, they can likely come up with lots of legal reasons. Exactly. And their deciding not to hire you isn't going to necessarily relate back to and be protected by the whistleblower action. Uh, uh, you know, it, with another employer.
2: Right. So, um, you know, I've, we've we had the other thing that I I want to ask you about is that there's a there's an assumption that the government really wants to go after these people. But I think the answer really comes back to all always the same thing, right? The the answer is money. What was the question? And if you're looking at a medical direction fraud case, let's pick that let's pick that. Whether it's a CRNA sure. QZ or whether it's one to four medical direction, billing medical direction, the cost of the government from the CMS perspective is the same. So the only recoverable money in theory If 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 there if there turns out to be no hard evidence of, you know, Medicare fraud is is probably the fines that come along with that. If they if they if they have some fines, otherwise they're they're spending money to go after this and resources of a limited bucket for nothing. It's just going to cost them. Sure.
0: Well, so yes or no. What I will say is this you're right that if there is no um, big win, if there is no Delta and there is no. Uh, then you can get the per-claim uh, statutory fees, right? right? And But one of the big things is that you can get treble damages, but if the damages of the government are nil, you're not going to be able to triple a very big amount. Right. Um, th- th- the idea of it costing the government more is a little bit of a misnomer, and I'll tell you why. Okay. <laughs> From when I was a prosecutor, I didn't get paid more or less how hard I worked. <laughs> I worked a lot harder than some of my colleagues. I had colleagues who worked a lot harder than me. We, we weren't paid by the case, by the win, by the anything. So what it does become is it does become a question of return on investment based on where are they going to direct their limited resources, right. right? So it's not that it would cost the government more, but if the government can bring, you know, five cases and they have a choice between five cases that will yield, you know, 10 to 100 million or cases that will yield seventy to a hundred thousand, where are they going to put their resources?
2: Right. It's a no-brainer.
0: So um now that does therefore create room for the key TAM and the you know relator driven case because sometimes the government doesn't intervene because the case is not valid, not legitimate. There are other times where the cases are not intervening based on sort of bandwidth. And I have strong opinions as someone who often defends you know, false claims. I, I have strong opinions on how the government does have the ability to say this case is ridiculous and no one should be able to go forward with it. I think that's a, a, a flex the government should use more because I do think there are a lot of cases that are brought in the name of the government that aren't uh, valid and uh, people shouldn't have to spend the time, the energy, the effort, the money defending them mm-hmm. um, because the goal of this is not to make lawyers rich. The goal of this is to discourage. Fraud against the government, which yields increased costs for all
2: of us. Let's pivot to the uh, Donigan versus Anesthesia Associates of Kansas City, and that was a that was a case um, where, effectively, you know, obviously, to Kansas, where effectively someone was looking to say that Medicare fraud had occurred, and part of the way this this individual um, saw Medicare fraud being uh, happening was that the. Physician anesthesiologists were not there for extubation. And many people have been taught mm-hmm. over the time that emergence, that's the colloquial where extubation happens to CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists, that emergence is a continuum. And as long as the physician anesthesiologists were to see that um, patient in recovery in the PACU before they leave, they've met that criteria for TEFRA, that they've been there for emergence. Mm-hmm. And it sound, it, looking at this from a non-legal person, it sounds to me like the judge, the, the, the court validated that in this particular case, but then gave them an opening for where extubation may be met. How do you see this case?
0: Well, so I guess what I would say is this, is the law doesn't like gray areas. They like black and white where they can, right? And so the idea is, if it's unclear whether or not extubation constitutes um, part of emergence, right, right. Um, then you, it's hard to say someone intentionally and falsely disregarded this information right. or disregarded these criteria. It's certainly hard to say. I mean, you have a better chance of saying they recklessly disregarded it. But again, if it was consistent with what your training was, right, and, you know, look, there's arguments you can make in both directions. This is one of those circumstances where I made the comment earlier, if I were going to bring one of these cases, I would want to lock it down and have it be, it is clear. It is evident because then by defining the lines and where things are, you can end up with better facts, better laws. This I think yields a little bit more confusion where I, 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 I don't know the case open in front of me, but it's one of those. I remember the court basically said, look, we aren't convinced that this, this maybe we're wrong. And maybe this is something that will be clarified. Yes. Right. And how right. could that be clarified? Yes. So, um, there was a case where basically whether or not something constitutes a violation of the false claims act turns on materiality. Is it material to the government's uh, payment, whether or not this occurred? Right. And so the government could clearly make the determination of clarifying by statute, by regulation or something that say, when we say emergence, that includes excavation, right. and then clear, easy. We now know when, uh, it doesn't say that, or they could go the other way and say, to be clear, we believe that if you are there when the individual is in the, you know, post care and they're starting to wake up, that's sufficient, um, right? And, and look, I see it cutting both ways to, uh, you know, to the CRNA in the following sense of... Uh, most CRNAs aren't going to say that they need a physician anesthesiologist there with them while this is happening. They can protect the patient and take care of the patient at this, you know, but, but they're not looking at it from the perspective of who's getting paid. They're just looking at it as what's necessary for a patient.
2: Right. Exactly.
0: Care, safety, welfare. Right. And so, um, it, it's, you look for me, the one thing I love, uh, from Tefra that I don't think it's enough, uh, what uh, enough play is when you go out. Uh, number four, Right, That you have to ensure that any procedure in the anesthesia plan that are not performed by the physician are performed by a qualified anesthetist, right? right? right. So I would argue that every single uh, time that medical direction is billed, it is a not tacit. It is an actual acknowledgement of the qualifications of the CRNA performing the, the procedures, because if you were going to question their qualifications, and whether or not they're qualified to administer anesthesia, and the means and the forms in which they did, you committed fraud by certifying to number four.
3: Right.
0: Right. No one comes at it from that angle. Um, believe me, I would love to see where someone, you know, later makes the argument that CRNAs aren't qualified, and then we say, well, if that's the case, then everything you've certified for medical direction must be fraudulent because you stipulated and you certified to the fact that all of this was being done by qualified anesthetists. Right. Exactly. Um, that, by the way, also wouldn't be a good false claims that case. Why? Because, you know, that that that's more an argument that's not, you know, a black and white was fraud committed. So I think when you talk about the Donegan case, I think there was clearly a question of whether or not this fell within the requirements. Mm -hmm. And if it's uncertain, you're going to have a hard time meeting uh, the intent requirements to prove fraud, because even though the law has been eroded and I have strong opinions on that, fraud is supposed to be a specific intent crime. Right. Right. Fraud is supposed to be something you intended to do, or you just, you know, put your head in the sand and play the ostrich. Fraud isn't something you accidentally are supposed to be able to commit. Oh, wait, I I have strong opinions on whether or not some of the fraud allegations do include that honest mistake, but that, 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 that's the defense lawyer.
2: Right. But you know, I mean, if, if someone, if someone wasn't sure that expiation was, it's, it's hard to want to hammer that person with fraud. If, if they said, well, it doesn't sure. say that, so I am i didn't know. I mean, that's not an unreasonable sure. argument, I think.
0: You know, if, Mike, if you're there providing care and you're working in uh, a model with medical direction and the physician walks in and says, all right, patient looks under control. This looks good. You have this. I'm going to go on and check the other patient that needs me that has a complication, whatever the circumstances may be, right? right none of that sounds like someone who's trying to commit wrong.
2: No, exactly. Yeah.
0: Right. And, and 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 I strongly, strongly, strongly believe that fraud cases should not be gotcha. And this is particularly true in healthcare, because one of the things I will tell you that is true of, I mean, of, of healthcare investigations, audits, enforcement, all of this, I have had the government on routine times will sit there and say, well, they did this, they made this mistake 840 times. <laughs> and the answer is no. They made the mistake once. And it got incorporated into their process, which got repeated 840 times. Right. They didn't, you know what I'm saying? Is right. The government tries to, you know, but let's say that the first time you do this, you, you know, it, it goes in such a way where there, is, you know, induction's not included. You submit the bill, it's it's included, it's unpaid, it's involved, and no one raises a concern. So that becomes your process. If you didn't have the intent to do it improperly, with fraud, with all this the first time, it doesn't suddenly appear because you then continue to provide care. And healthcare... Whether it's mistakes or whether it's fraud, it very rarely happens once or twice. It is usually, you know, repeated and repeated and repeated, which is what makes them such attractive cases uh, to frame this fraud because that increases the likelihood of you being able to get
3: a big uh, money. I had a
0: case early. I had a case early in my career where the long and short was the government was coming after someone aggressively with an audit because they were billing. I'm just going to make up the numbers. You know, nine nine two two nine instead of nine nine two nine two. And the, and the explanation wasn't, it was a transcription error, my bad. It was, I went to a uh, conference and the government's biller said, this is how you should do it. And I was surprised, but I started doing it this way. And they're like, well, didn't you notice you started making $4,000 when you were making, you know, 300? And the answer was, yeah. And I was really glad I went to that seminar. Uh, yeah. And the government, and, and the government was basically like, this is BS, this is BS, this is BS. Long and short is, we ended up finding these slides from that presentation and sure enough the government's presenter had actually transcribed it inaccurately by mistake on their slide
3: right
0: and but they were and but here's so you want the worst thing is okay you didn't commit fraud but you got all of this money you weren't entitled to so you still have to get it back
2: and they only did what they were told by an agent of the government
0: yeah an honest mistake but you know uh, you so, but that's one of the reasons that you kind of wanna you know be careful and always have an explanation for what you're doing and why you're doing it, uh, because sometimes someone comes back and wants an explanation, and it's useful to have you know the ability to explain why you did what you did.
2: you know one of the other things i, I noticed in the Donegan case is that it the judge actually opened up a a potential line of arguing or extubation being a critical portion of a case meeting a different uh, TEFRA rule. And so basically said that, you know, you didn't argue that, so we're not going to consider it, but that's where maybe this could be argued. That, that does seem to make sense. Extubation is a critical part. It's like taking off in a plane and landing on a plane. Induction of anesthesia, extubating is landing the plane. And so I think that there still may be a place in these You know, um, fraud lawsuits for if you're billing medical direction, you're not there for extubation. It may be considered a critical portion. That may be part of that. Does that make sense to you as a lawyer?
0: Oh, sure. Look, you know, here's the great thing: change a single fact, and I can make an entirely different argument. (laughs) Right. Look, do do, do I think that different facts could yield different laws or different results? Sure. And do I think? that non-adherence to TEFRA could yield a significant false claims that case. I do. Um, that being said, I think it would take the right back for it. And like I said, someone's going to get their private Island and I'm going to be like, God, I've been paying attention to this thing for a decade. I should have done it. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I'm not living my life trying to figure out how I can, uh, you know, make significant amounts of money off the taking advantage of CRNAs. I think I want to focus more on CRNAs being able to know, uh, how to work in an environment where they can advocate for themselves, where they can know what they need to, to protect their own value. And, you know, in a circumstance like this, it really, I mean, I hate to say this, but at the end of the day, it's sort of a turf issue. It is right. Because, um, I mean, and again, when I say that I'm not trying to minimize the importance of patient safety, right. Right. That, but I sort of try to work from the perspective that if, if there's people that aren't prioritizing patient safety first, they shouldn't be part of the discussion. They shouldn't be part of the game. Right. right? But, but the idea of uh, whether or not it's being billed, you know, 50, 50, the hospital system's getting the same, the government's being billed the same. It's just a question of attribution. And I know that that has very real consequences to people and it has, you know, significant impact on things like income and other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, People were providing care, quality care before TEFRA, after TEFRA, and uh, as this issue gets clarified, as more cases get uh, brought, if someone brings a case and says you have to do A, B, C, D in the following way, ideally what will happen is everyone will then start to adhere to that, and it'll become a non-issue.
2: Especially if it's more spelled out, I think.
0: Sure, because let's be candid. The one thing we all forget when it comes to TEFRA is this. Let's assume that you went in with the intention of medical direction, Everyone agreed, best interest of the patient, good opportunity. And, you know, the physician is monitoring four patients, right? Because you can do four to one. Mm -hmm. And something happens during the third patient that really requires everyone all hands on deck. And the physician never makes it back to patient four. Right. That isn't a problem. Just don't bill a QZ. Yeah,
2: yeah, go ahead (laughs) and bill a QZ. Yeah,
0: right. No, and, or bill it qz too. yes yeah. just don't bill it medical direction bill it qz right. and then right because the idea is none of this is whether or not the patient is safe none of this is whether or not uh the care is provided none of this is whether or not it's medically necessary it really is how to attribute right. and i remember having someone ask that uh at a lecture i was speaking and said you know well what happens if something happens and you know one of the patients who can't get around to doing everything. And I said, hey, look, unless I'm missing something, I'm going to defer to the people with more billing experience in the room. But I'm like, I think that one's easy. You know, just, just bill it QZ. It is. And heck, you can even note the thing. We started this, you know, as medical direction, but.
2: You know. right. I think the bottom line is TEFRA has nothing to do with patient safety. Right. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it comes about from what was considered yeah. massive Medicare fraud in the eighties in anesthesia, where people were, you know, you could have a physician anesthesiologist on the golf course billing for 50 CRNAs and, and, and killing it. And at the time there was nothing saying you couldn't do that. And so, you know, this TEFR thing came to require one, you know, each pe- person to do certain things in order to get paid. It has nothing to do with patient safety because there is no difference in patient safety. Cause like you said, you could immediately bill QZ. And guess what? That patient you're billing QZ is just as safe as they were the minute before when you were billing medical direction. Yeah, it's it's well,
0: and look, the other thing that I think we have to acknowledge is this is an example where I mean, sometimes you can overcorrect, or right? Because here's the thing: were there instances where there was the you know anesthesiologist on the golf course? Use your example, sure, but there were also immense numbers who were there providing absolutely. patient care, working in yeah, right, and, and so it's yeah. like, not, and so I will just as a personal opinion any profession god knows start with lawyers right but if you want to judge a profession by the worst of its players you're going to end up with either a whole lot of really bad jokes or it's all just going to be negative perception
2: right so well you know rules like this are always made for the lowest common denominator not the, the average person or anyone else let's, you know and, and that, i think well and the, let's and let's be honest the other thing you
0: have to remember is the investigative side of things, right? Audit and investigation, none of us are being looked at as if we are good quality providers. Everyone's being looked at based on the worst of us to see what similarities are there between what we do and what other people who were taking advantage did. And when the government identifies the right data points they're looking at, they can identify fraud. And when they identify the wrong data points, they can suddenly take good practitioners and make them jump through hurdles and hoops because somebody else was trying to steal.
2: I think part of the frustration um for CRNAs as a profession is that although it's clear that this was used just to avoid billing fraud and has nothing to do with patient safety or care that's the that's the hammer against CRNAs that you know our detractors use oh well this is the safest model because it guarantees there's a physician anesthesiologist there for you know up to 4 cases so you know you and I are talking about it about what it really was intended for and about it, you know, it's about billing Medicare and about what people have to do to get paid, you know, and if you're not doing that, you can't get paid. And you might be fraud if you're intentionally not doing that, but the way it's used on an association level or, you know, a, a trade association level is to suggest that this is the safest model, but safety's not part of this equation. And I think, you know, if, there, if, if patients were unsafe working with CRNAs working independently versus working in an anesthesia care team, it wouldn't be long before that was hashed out in lawsuits and cost, uh, you know, to facilities for, you know, patient deaths or negative outcomes or, you know, bad, bad decision making. So it's just, and that's just not there. And so, you know, the, the preponderance of case law makes it pretty clear that CRNAs working independently aren't being sued to any great degree because of, you know, they're, they're, they're dangerous to patients without having a physician and anesthesiologist. And, and that's what frustrates, I think, CRNAs about this medical direction thing is because although it's not the intent, it's being manipulated as if this, the intent is safety. See, even the government says, for you sure. to be safe, I have to be there. Except for when you bill QZ, the government says that's okay yeah. too. <laughs> yeah.
0: Look, I, I, I have I have stood in court on behalf of the American Association of Anesthetists, and I have uh, argued, and I have even you know frustrated a judge or two, where I basically say, look, if the other side had a single study, a single case, a single ability to prove that the administration of anesthesia was safer when it was solely. You know, physician driven versus when it's the care team model versus when it's an independent practice in CRNA. If that existed, they would be swinging from the rafters, citing it to case and verse. And the fact that they are not is in of itself Mm evidence that that argument is not supportable. And I think that's the reason, right? Look, no one is saying doctors are nurses and nurses are doctors. And we have to be honest that the administration of anesthesia is one of the more unique aspects of healthcare healthcare Mm -hmm. because. I think you would agree with me when performed by a properly licensed trained medical professional with a degree as a physician the administration of anesthesia is the practice of medicine. Yes. And when it is performed by a properly licensed credentialed and trained individual medical professional who is a nurse it is the practice of nursing. Right. Right. And um not only do we tie, you know, advocacy into it but we also tie emotion into it because I I really got in trouble in uh, New Jersey once when the judge said, well, counselor, all I can tell you is if it was my mother on the table, I would prefer it to be a doctor. And I said, well, sir, if you don't mind, uh, can I take your analogy? You're saying if you had to choose between a nurse and a doctor, you would want it to be a doctor. But if I will tell you if it was the nurse, the doctor, or the plumber that you were choosing between, but I could guarantee you that the plumber gave your mother the best chance of a positive outcome, you actually want the plumber because you're not concerned about anything other than you want your mother to be okay. Right. and this idea that your mother is more likely to be okay just because of this position as compared to just because it is a nurse is not supported it's not true it's not and that argument didn't go well and i really pissed that judge off <laughs> um, but i still stand by it right it's true the judge thought my comment the, the judge thought my comment was a little snide <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that's a perception right that's that that's the lens of perception for well, someone who does but
0: that. Well, but that's well, Part of the problem is this: is we're taking what is an emotional thing and wrapping it up in as if it was an intellectual or logical thing, right? right? Because what, what I will ask you is this: Are there physician anesthesiologists who provide safer care than the, some, you know, nurse anesthetists? Sure. Yes. Are there are there nurse anesthetists who provide or nurse anesthesiologists who provide safer care than some doctors? Yes. yes right. If we lined up, uh, you know, anesthesia providers best to worst. It wouldn't be a continuum of one, you know, yeah. uh, type of practitioner versus another. Um, but to your point, once you have a situation like that, you can take those arguments and you can create those secondary arguments. Like the government wouldn't have this in place if it wasn't for that; it's necessary for safety.
2: I mean, on prima facie, I think it's pretty clear. There's just nothing there. There's no there there. But that that's when the emotion gets into it, and and. And look, frankly, your personal interest gets into it well, but I went but I I'm a CRNA, so I think I'm better because I went through that training. Well, I'm a physician, I think I'm better because I went through that training. There becomes a lot of personal emotion involved.
0: And you should never let facts get in the way of a good argument
2: that, right that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so let's pivot to the New Hampshire ruling. Um, you know I we're seeing a lot we've seen a lot of of discussion uh, both from the ASA and the ANA about this New Hampshire Supreme Court ruling saying that, you know, um it w- related to the nurse anesthesiologist descriptor. And what the suggestion coming from the ASA is is that see, it's illegal to use that, it's not transparent. And from the ANA, the statement is no, that's not what was said in this court case at all. In fact, they were deadlocked. The end result is nothing. We're back to square one. What is your perspective? on that ruling.
0: So, I'm just going to speak about the issue generally since the AANA did act as an amicus I yeah. uh, as this counsel in that and there are still issues that remain pending before the New Hampshire court. The last thing I would ever want to do is, is say anything that comments on a pending decision. Right. If that makes sense. It does. But I can talk about the con- the concept. Yeah. Right? And look one of the things so what is an anesthesiologist right I, I i feel pretty you know comfortable that i know uh your opinion on this sure, right yeah the idea that uh, that ologist means someone who is learned in yep and you know anesthetist or you know so that an anesthesiologist is someone who is, who is learned in the right. science of the treatment of anesthesia
2: or a mixologist right? is a bartender right <laughs>
0: Well, or, you know, it depends. I mean, are you going to limit a mixologist to someone who can only mix alcohol? No. But the, but the, but, but so, so what I will tell you is this. Um, there are, however, states that define an anesthesiologist as a physician who. Right. Right? So if you're in a state that says an anesthesiologist is a physician who, does this then you have limitations with the idea of saying that you are a physician who does this or that you are an anesthesiologist because it could call that into question right. now the idea of patient confusion i write i am a nurse I'm a nurse anesthetist. I'm a nurse anesthesiologist. I, I have a hard time believing the argument that when you walk into someone and say, I am a nurse anesthesiologist, they believe that you are saying I am a nurse who's also a physician. Right. Right. Um, the And I think that if we wanted to clarify what the law is and what the law allows, then there could be whatever steps were necessary to, uh, the informing of the public but i'll go back to what i said earlier right people care about the degree of the healthcare provided not the degree of the healthcare provider right and um i i, I say this with you know great love when my wife and i were having our children and my wife was looking forward to an epidural <laughs> i promise you she I, I don't think anyone has questioned what a uh, an advocate for cRNAs i have been in my career but i will tell you I would have been killed had I stopped at that moment and asked, well, can I just verify or are you a nurse? <laughs> <laughs> <"Are> you a <laughs> yeah, the, physician, didn't care, right? And, <laughs> and, well, wait, and, and, and at that point, neither did I, yeah. right? The only person who I know who raised the issue was my father was going in for a surgical procedure and an individual turned to him and said, I will be your certified registered nurse. My dad smiled and told them that I was the general counsel for the A. N. A. it was just, it was, okay. it was just, it was very cute. One of those proud parents. Yeah. But other than a situation like that, as a general rule, people don't care. They care about, right. Can you can take away my pain? Can you put me to sleep? Can you wake me up? And can you allow me to safely return to my life? Yeah, those are the
3: only things
2: right? that they care about. Yep. It,
0: it, 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 it is one of the most result oriented aspects of healthcare. Right. And so, um, and, and look, I think some of the arguments that get presented, you know, when you say, well, it, it, it inherently applies only to a physician. Okay, but then how do you have a veterinary anesthesiologist how do you have a dental anesthesiologist? Right. I, I think, like, I, I'm a big fan personally of uh, intellectual integrity.
3: Yeah.
0: Right? That if you want to make an argument, it has to have a certain degree of integrity just from a logical perspective. Um, but I will also tell you that, um, you know... Uh, we'll see what happens. I do. I think this controls and addresses the issue uh, definitively for the nation. Of course I don't No, yeah. Right.
2: So, well, and I think, I think the other question a lot of people ask is, you know, the, the term anesthesiologist by itself, I would suggest that the term anesthesi- anesthesiologist by itself is not transparent. Right. It doesn't matter what it says in state law, because all people know that is, is the person that puts them to sleep. Again, it's not the degree, it's the degree of care. That's how they see it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even if, it, from my personal opinion, not a lawyer, um, even if it says an anesthesiologist is a physician who, I don't think nurse anesthesiologist mm-hmm. is the same. And I don't, and I don't think, and, and we've got a couple legal opinions that make this pretty clear, that it isn't, mm-hmm. right? Just like, because if that was the case, then dentist anesthesiologist, that would be illegal. Like that, you'd be breaching the statute. You'd be non-transparent in
0: in in, in a state that defines uh, anesthesiologist as a physician. Who you're right, there would be a, a logical and a legal inconsistency.
2: Right, in every state, dentist anesthesiologist exists in. So there's there seems to be already an inconsistency. And you know, I I agree with you. The transparency side is is silly. If I if look, if I say I I am I am a carpenter. And someone says, well, I thought he said he was a plumber. That's not my fault. If I said I was a carpenter, it's as descriptive yeah. as it gets. If someone doesn't hear that, yeah. for you know, like when I say, I, it, you know, when I originally started, and I said I'm a nurse anesthetist. You know, before I started using a nurse anesthesiologist, when I said I was a nurse anesthetist, I walk out of the room and within minutes, yeah, my anesthesiologist came in and said hi. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, you know, you know what I mean? Sure. But I've been transparent when well, I said nurse.
0: The one thing that I think though is also true is, and again, this is not true of all uh, MD anesthesiologists. But why was there a push for some anesthesiologists to start introducing themselves as physician anesthesiologists or MD anesthesiologists? Was like you can't claim that anesthesiologist inherently
2: means one thing.
0: Connotes physician. If you feel the need to put physician in front, announce and attach that you are a physician in front, right? And so, I, I mean, but again, I, 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 I think that, you know, people should continue to focus on the quality of the care. I think that this is an issue that will continue to play itself out. I think it will probably, and it's something, you know, look, the, medi- the minute Medicare or somebody says, here is our definition period.
3: Right.
0: Right. And it gets adopted by states this and that. Met, but uh, you know i will also say is this that i you know i think that as we keep the focus on right i am someone who can
3: right
0: you know because let's be honest i mean anesthesia you are literally taking away someone's consciousness right that's the definition it is the most vulnerable a human being can make themselves Absolutely. or can be made
3: yep.
0: right you are taking away their consciousness so the idea of i am someone who can safely do this to you minimize your discomfort and bring you back to your life safely I don't care my title. Right. That's, that's me, right? I, I
2: just want that result. Yeah, and I, and so I think patients I think, generally feel yeah. that way, right? But I think that the reason mm-hmm. why this has become important to CRNAs is because your first introduction to a patient is your title, right? So, you know, Correct. that's my first step in their direction is when I say, hey, my name is Mike. I'll be your nurse anesthesiologist today. You know, I made it clear I'm a nurse and I practice anesthesia. I'm learned in anesthesia. And that you were learned in it. Yeah. Because patients do not know and have no idea what anesthetist means. I've been called anesthetician. I've been called, they've been, they've asked me, what does that mean? What are you doing? Like, you know, they hear that and they're confused because the colloquial, the common language term for someone who puts someone to sleep for surgery is anesthesiologist. Whether anyone likes that or not is irrelevant. That's the fact. And so, sure. you know, if that's a colloquial term, it shouldn't be any more able to be protected than anesthetist can't be protected. Sure. Right. So listen, I want to swing back to one thing you mentioned. You said your, your dad had been an antitrust lawyer. And so you have some interest in antitrust. How do you sure. see antitrust is because I've had some of these conversations with the FTC. I've talked to a couple of lawyers, mm-hmm. at the FTC. How do you see antitrust as it relates to competition between physician anesthesiologists and CRNAs, and obviously you've had a lot of discussions sure. about this stuff. What's your perspective on that? Well, I,
0: I do have to clarify one thing. My, my father was, was not practicing. My eighty-one-year-old father, fifty-seven years at the same law firm, is still practicing, still practicing, still still accepted as uh, one of the world's experts in uh, antitrust and franchise law. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so the look, the, the idea is this when these things start being postured and approached in a way so as to limit people's access to the marketplace and therefore to access to care. I think that's where it becomes problematic. And um, I think the idea that the FTC has consistently looked into and uh, shown a willingness to chime in when things get pushed too far uh, is important. I would love to see the issue clarified because I mean, if I can offer a Mark Silverman and Mark Silverman only position, absolutely. Um, look, I think when we look, I think when we look at healthcare, access to care is becoming a real issue again. It is right, and so the less that we can see people worrying about their place, and the more we can figure out making sure that we all have access to the care that we need, and not just in the urban centers, and not just but like the the, the entirety you know, of our country. Right. I, I I am of the school of thought that, uh, it's not okay to be one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world. If not, And, and, and that there are people who truly just have no access to healthcare. Uh, and you know, people can overlook the administration of anesthesia as much as they want, but stop and consider how much of healthcare cannot occur. You know, uh, I I, I will tell you, I do know some people who chose to, you know, uh, have their colonoscopies, I believe, in what is the European way without anesthesia. I was uh, a a hell no uh, (laughs) 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 uh, on that spectrum and and was very grateful for the administration. Um, And that's something I'm not suggesting that, you know, colonoscopies aren't important, but that's something that, you know, there are so many, so many, so many, so many, so many different things that every day cannot happen, uh, you know. I remember years ago, someone talked about we should have a day without CRNAs and the problem was you couldn't even joke about that because of the amount of people who would die or suffer.
2: Right, yeah. Yeah, well, you just wouldn't and have that. And so access. taking it,
0: take yeah, taking it away from CRNAs. So, so the idea is that I don't think we are seeing a lesser need for access to quality anesthesia care. And so if we could figure out a way that we can all have our focus being on making sure, look, one of the reasons I have always been proud uh, to advocate for the CRNA community is the idea that, you know, quality of care and patient safety and advancement of patient safety is always going to be forefront and always been a priority. Right. And there are issues that fall under, you know, professional respect and acumen. I, you know, I wish I could see expansions of the, any willing provider, uh, regulations that exist because the idea that there should not be provider discrimination,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
0: I would love to see that in a meaningful way. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, as as best I can understand, you know, anesthesia providers are getting a little more, a little more, a little more leverage in the marketplace because of the shortage of anesthesia providers, and that becomes a very scary slippery slope. Yeah. So to tie it back to your antitrust question, the more that we do things and create things and present, you know, things that create barriers of access to healthcare or act in an anti-competitive way. I think we may need to do everything we can to knock all of those down because I think at some point we really are going to find ourselves uh, meaningfully fighting access to care and in a way that, that that would not be good for anyone, and certainly not good for the patients you know that are served by, by anesthesia providers.
2: Well, exactly right. I mean if, if as an example, if you have medical direction, you have one ph- highly trained physician anesthesiologist tied up. For four highly trained CRNAs performing anesthesia, that's one more person who could be performing anesthesia, right? It's an impediment or a barrier to access to care for that patient, for that physician anesthesiologist not to be performing anesthesia. It doesn't benefit the patient. There's no evidence that it does. So let's have them do what they trained to do, what they wanted to do, what they probably love doing, because they're forced into these roles too. It's not like, you know, physicians don't want to do anesthesia. That's not the case. So you know, that is an impediment to access to care. If you were to take away all the yeah. anesthesia care team, now I'm not saying that we do that, but let's say we we took all those people that weren't actually personally performing anesthesia and put them in nowhere, we wouldn't have a shortage. So, you know, the, the, it's artificially created, right? All the people who are trained to do anesthesia aren't doing oh. it. And so- Sure, it, And but you
0: know, yeah, one, one of the solutions we have to go no factor into that though, is let's be honest, behind a lot of this is, people are worried about lawyers and liability and if we make this change and something happens is some lawyer going to try to frame this and you know that's why like i said we don't do medical malpractice right right but i mean you know it's it's we got to figure out how to sort of fix things and i I don't pretend it's an easy fix yeah no Uh, but i've always said you remember how all the way back to the beginning i said if you have if if the reason you did something was because it's the right thing to do right? Is if your rationale for something was, it was in the best interest of my patient and it was going to be the best for their safety and their outcome, right. that, that's always going to be a good position to be arguing from. Even if, even if the facts and the law don't combine in a way that it gives you the results you want, You know,
2: I always think you're in a better spot. I agree. So where are you going from here? What are you doing now? What, I know you're still um, doing some contractual work for the ANA. What, what else are you doing?
0: I, You know, like I said, we, uh, Benish was at the uh, annual Congress. We had a booth, uh, talked to a number of CRNAs, a lot of CRNA students. Uh, we, I, we will, the nice thing is this, over 10 years, I built up a team of young lawyers that uh, we were training to be advocates for CRNAs to be able to help them with business issues. Uh, we thought of a lot of things. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I would love feedback uh you know from from you know your podcast listeners uh one of the things i kicked around the idea is do we figure out a way to bring back the business of anesthesia conference you know so that we can uh you know get young entrepreneurial crnas and maybe even not so young entrepreneurial crnas but give people the opportunity to uh you know know what they need to know to 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 set up their own businesses to protect themselves i think in an ideal world, I'd like to look at this more preventively. I'd rather people work with good lawyers and good advocates in the beginning for a lower cost than to have crises that need them later. Right? right. Believe it or not, minimizing your legal spend is is my my goal when I'm doing white collar work. Is to make myself as obsolete as quickly as I can. <laughs> but even more, but but even more, my goal is to make myself never necessary. Right? right. So I mean, look, we are the the firm is doing wonderfully well we are continuing to grow but we're really focused on and maintaining our culture uh very excited about that Venish has really been a great home uh and i am incredibly appreciative to the fact that when i moved uh, law firms the aNA chose to continue working with me through that uh we really have enjoyed serving the profession and we'll continue to do so uh in whatever capacity we're needed and we'll continue to do so for individual crnas because uh Look, it's it, it is a profession worth fighting for, and as I said, it's an aspect of healthcare that is too important to allow it to be marginalized.
2: Mark, it's been great having you on the podcast. You've been an amazing guest. A lot of really good information, I think, for people out there listening. They'll,
0: My pleasure. I'm glad to. You'll have you. you'll eventually let me. You'll eventually let me know what I said that amazingly offended people, and you'll let, and I apologize for that. You'll let me know what I said that hopefully inspired people. Uh, and anything that i can continue to do uh
1: we're happy to be here at
2: well thank you very much for being here and uh we
1: really appreciate it my pleasure have a good one That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussions, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com.